Welcome, and thank you for joining us today for the teaching and preaching ministry from Central Baptist Church, Kannapolis, North Carolina. As senior pastor, Dean Hunter shares from the Bible how to live in a fallen world. The goal of Central Baptist Church is to change the world by teaching the Word of God. Come, let's listen in. We're into the book of 1 John again today. We were there last week. I think we'll be there a while. Beginning what is quickly becoming maybe a whole series on authentic Christianity. We're in chapter two. Last week we started this thought of what it looks like to be an authentic Christian. Yeah, there's a lot of people who say they are. Jesus himself said, many will say in that day, did we not do this and do that and go to church and get perfect attendance and give a dollar and he'll say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. What a sobering thought that there will be people misled, false believers, false professors who hear, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. On one hand, it's kind of challenging to think that's possible, that a person could live their life thinking they're a Christian. But as we study the Word of God, we see that it's very possible and quite likely that many people have been and many people will be deceived thinking they're something they're not. Jesus said, broad is the path that leads to destruction, and many there be who find it. But narrow is the gate that leads to eternal life, and few there be who find it. And in 1 John, the entire book, the entire letter, John's ultimate goal, I believe, is so that you know that you know that you're born again. So that there is no confusion so that you don't live your life. Church, I'm not talking today about the people that are at home right now. Now, Let me clarify, I'm not talking about the church members who are home right now. I'm talking about the unchurched who don't go to church, who, who don't pray, that's not the people we're talking about today. John is writing to a local church. Guess what, guess where you're at? A local church. And he's writing to local church members who are professing believers. And he says later in chapter 5, the last chapter of this letter, verse 13, uh, I want you to know these things have I written unto you that you may know that you're born again. The best tool of the devil is a Christian unsure about his or her salvation. They're not doing anything for the cause of Christ. We've got to get this straight. So today, I didn't say this last week, I probably should have, let's not, let's not hear the word of God and hear me and think who he's talking about out there. John, the Holy Spirit, God is saying, church member, consider yourself Make sure when this is all said and done 
that when you walk out today and go into the real world, that you know it's not something that's confusing. It's clear, it's concise, it's cut and dry. And John is probably the best author to give us what, for lack of better terms, a litmus test. Here's your checkoff list so that you can know, not if your neighbor's born again, but if you're born again. If we get really serious about it, it's a sad thought. I don't know that there is a sadder thought than a person meeting Jesus, thinking they're going to his heaven and spending eternity with him. Now, I know what I'm saying cuts against the grain of modern culture. Tremendously, and for you woodworkers, it's a, it's a cross cut. There's a lot of kickback possibilities in the cross cut. The rest of you ask somebody later what that means, but it's, it's easier to cut with the grain than against the grain. Because the, the world and the false teachers would have us to believe there is no way a holy, righteous, gracious, good God would let you get to heaven thinking you're good and not be. There's a universalist approach that says all roads lead to God's heaven. How would a holy, righteous, gracious, loving God let um, a Hindu, a Muslim, who dedicated their life to a religion, get to heaven, find out it was wrong, how could a loving God let that person spend eternity in hell? And that preaches really good to a lost crowd who doesn't know the word of God. But the sad, ultimate reality is, this is the book that the world will be judged on and Jesus is the only way. Why is missions important? It's what we're here to do. We're here to share the gospel so that no one can stand before God confused or saying, no one ever told me. It's our job to tell the world Jesus is the only way. It's God's job to convict and save. One more amen and I'll start. That was, that was good. That's our job. Is that so no one stands before God not knowing the truth. Whether they respond to it or not, it's up to them and God. And John says, church member, wake up. Listen to what God says so that you know that you're born again. Last week we talked about walking in the light. Well, really the whole chapter, the whole book is about walking in the light. Today, John gets a little more specific. Let's stand as we read God's word, honor it. It is true. It is without error. We may add some error to it, but it's holy. My little children, he's a Sunday school teacher in the preschool area. <laughs> These things I write unto you, oh my, that you Everybody, okay, everybody gets settled down. I've never seen people walk down the aisles before. Oh my, I don't even know. These things I write unto you that you sin not. What? 
I start out of the gate with fussing at me. But if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Everybody that's ever sinned ought to at least under their breath, even in a Methodist home, say, Amen, thank God. But if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Why'd you get so loud on that? Well, I like that part. And hereby we do know that we know him. How, how do I know if I know him? If we keep his commandments. He that says, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments. Oh, King James is so hard is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Who's a liar? Who did you call a liar? Someone who says they know him but don't keep his commandments. But whoever keeps his word in him, verily is the love of God perfected, practiced. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that says he abides in him ought himself also to walk, even as he, or Jesus, walked. Talk today about walking the talk. Not just talking the talk, but walking while we talk. Father, thank you for your word. I pray we're attentive, not to a man standing on the platform, but to you, your Holy Spirit, the Holy Word of God. That we won't hear man's words, we'll hear your words. And I pray sincerely that every person in this room who, especially those who are professing, I'm a Christian, they leave here today knowing what it really looks like and what it should look like. And they make the appropriate decisions after reaching the appropriate conclusion. Help us to not just be hearers and know a little bit more today, but be doers of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. John says in the first chapter, which we saw last week, that what true fellowship with God looks like, it's fellowship with the Father, with God, and with his son, Jesus Christ. As I said earlier, he's gonna give some details as to what it looks like. A checklist, if you will, of what a true believer looks like. What a true believer acts like. How a true believer walks. And I have to say this as a disclaimer at the beginning. We're going to cover the ground, so everybody just sit back and hold tight. None of us are sinless. Let's do this. Point to somebody you know is a sinner real quick. No, don't do it. No. None of us are sinless. But there is a solution. So before we get too excited on Knowing how great we are, we got to be reminded, and it's coming, and John covers that. 
talked about this last week, but in this chapter that we're in today, later he'll say, he's really answering the question for why many people are leaving the church. If you weren't here last, last week, this will help. If you were here last week, just kind of like, yeah, I remember. By the way, if, I don't know if you've noticed, people are still leaving the church. It's been happening since the church was founded. And um, the reason people leave the church, once again, just to clarify, not church hop, but leave the church altogether, the church of God, the church of Christ, not the denominations. He says in verse 19 of chapter 2, it's because they came out from us, but they were not of us. And he makes it very clear that the reason people leave the church as a whole, leave Christianity, which happens, it's happened with people in this church. I've been here long enough to know there are people that left this church who were faithful and went into some, not just another denomination, but another religion. Well, they were born again, they loved Jesus, they were Christian, but then they decided they want to be Jehovah's Witness. Now, some of you who might not be quite as learned, and maybe the world would be like, well, what's wrong with that? Well, what's wrong with that is Jehovah's Witness is a cult, and it's not of the Bible, and uh, it's not true. They don't believe the way the Bible says we should believe about Jesus, among other things. Now, nobody in their right mind, well, let me, you have to qualify that these days, there's not a lot of people in their right mind, even though they say they're in their right mind. But um, this is our God. And a person who says they're born again and in a Baptist church for 30 years and then decides to be a Jehovah's Witness, they didn't lose their salvation. They never had it. They said, well, that's harsh. That's that's how y'all believe here? Yeah, at least I do, and most people that hang out believe that too, or they'd leave and go to Jehovah's Witness or wherever. There are people confused. You, you work with them. You go to school with them. And we know the truth. And John says, hey, here, here's how you know. We've got to quit pacifying a crowd and being soft on a crowd who, well, they don't really believe like we, used to, like we believe. And so they went and um, they joined up with whoever. That's exactly what John's talking about. They were an out from us, but they were not of us. They didn't believe like we believe. Not that Central Baptist Church has a, a monopoly on all the good beliefs. No, every local Bible-believing church ought to be in unity with the authority of Scripture. You leave that, you left the church. Not the little church, but the big church. And that's what John says. So when he wants us to know, he, he definitely wants us to know that what it looks like to be a real believer, a true believer, who doesn't just leave the church, they can leave and go to another church they like the preacher better at. That was a joke, that was funny. <laughs> no, they are still a Bible-believing church. Amen. They don't leave the church. Pastor Justin and I, our staff have had a conversation for a while now. I took it as a challenge when I was youth pastor and even now as pastor uh, to invest in the, in the younger generation. 
Why? Statistics are crazy about the kids who go to church all their life, Baptist church all their life, go to college four years. Think about the odds and the ratio. Somebody's messing up. If you go to church from the womb to 18 and then you go off for four years to Chapel Hill and they change your mind, I don't blame Chapel Hill. I expect them to preach non-gospel. I don't expect them to go to Chapel Hill and grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord or name your other school. So something happened. Something's wrong. Church not doing their job. Parents aren't doing their job. So we want to try to fix that. Why? Because there's kids who grow up in a church and they're a member of a church and then they get to college and they're gone and they don't come back. The statistics tell us it's 80% roughly that don't come back to church, not to just their home church, but to church at all. And we want to make sure that those children and those teenagers don't come up just from us. We want them to come up of us. Not just us. We're not a cult here. But Christianity, true Christianity. We teach them the truth. We want them to grow in grace and knowledge. We want them to know this is the word of God and this absolute truth. And it never changes no matter what a PhD says. Know how to defend your faith. Know that this is your church, not your mom's church or your grandpa's church. This is your church. Get involved. And when you get done, we want you to come back, Elizabeth, to your church. Right? We've got a problem. We need to combat that in the local church. All right, that's enough. That's how it gets long. In this text, it's very clear that John wants us to know a few things. First of all, true believers have an advocate with the Father. My little children, these things write unto you that you sin not. And if you sin, we have an advocate with the Father. First of all, the believer uh, has a different attitude towards sin. We see sin differently than the world. Now John says, my little children, and, and that's important. He's not belittling, he's not being derogatory. It's really a term of endearment. He's, he's, he's like the wise, older, mature Christian dad, father in the spirit, who's wanting to invest in his spiritual children. But it's also a word, that word children is, is like a, a newborn. And it's not just the endearment of father to son or father to daughter. It's also intentional that as a newborn grows, a Christian is growing. There is a, a timeline, if you will, of spiritual maturity in a believer's life. And so John says, hey, my little children, I'm writing to you that you sin not. Oh, this could be the whole sermon, but it's not. If you would have come to church on Wednesday, I didn't mean, that sounded mean when I said it that way. Let me rephrase. <laughs> on Wednesday nights, we've been studying the great book of Romans, and it's been Fantastic. And this past Wednesday, we were in chapter 7. If you came for chapter 7 last Wednesday, then I don't have to preach this. But John, let me just say this. Paul makes it clear in Romans 7 that Christians still sin. Now, if you're having trouble with that, I don't have time to fix that right now. Just go back later and read Romans 7. 
or just wake up. But, Paul, but John writes here and he says, one of my purposes, young children, little baby believers, growing in grace and knowledge, I, won't, I don't want you to sin. Let me say it this way. God doesn't want us to sin. It's too quiet. That makes me want to talk about this more. <laughs> yeah, we're going to sin. But there's no license to sin. Yes, we're sin did abound. Grace did much more abound. You should be here on Wednesdays for Romans. But God doesn't want us to sin. It's a difficult text, but we do sin. Because you still look today like you did, well, not some of you, 10 years ago, but um, the day you got saved, you woke up the next day and you looked the same. You still had flesh. You're still in the flesh. And there's still a war that fights between the spirit, the inner man and the outer man. Inner man's the Holy Spirit indwelled by God, the outer man still this nasty old flesh. But that reality is not an excuse to sin. That's, that's, that's the hard part. That's the hardest thing I'll say all day probably. Paul's, Paul's textbook response to that all the time was God forbid. Absolutely not. It really means don't even let that enter your mouth. Says a Christian doesn't think that way. Oh, I can sin to just say, Lord, forgive me. I'm keep on going. I'm good. He says, God forbid. That's not the mind. That's not the attitude of a believer. So John says, hey, I'm writing to you that you sin not. Just in case you thought it was all right to sin. No, it's not. You shouldn't be sinning. But when you do, we have an advocate with the Father. And thank God we have an advocate with the Father. An advocate, some of you have experienced this in real life. You've, you've had an attorney. You've had a defense attorney. You got in trouble. You call them up. No, nobody in here. I mean, I've heard of other churches having people who had attorneys. But what's interesting is not just the word for attorney. The actual word there is, is the word for comforter, as in the Holy Spirit. Some, let that sink in a second. And let me just make, connect the dots. There's no greater comfort in the life of a believer than knowing when we sin, we have an advocate in the, to the Father. And the advocate, he says, is Jesus because he's the righteous one. Hey, when you sin before a holy, righteous God, you're not walking in the courtroom representing yourself. That's not possible. You're not good enough to represent yourself in God's courtroom. You've got to have an advocate. And there's only one advocate. There's only one advocate that can plead your case so that the judge finds you not guilty. And that advocate is the only righteous one, he says, Jesus. There's nobody perfect. Y'all figured that out? Nobody perfect. I did read a story about a man who knew a perfect man. Um, this was kind of interesting. He, this, this man was at a conference, and I guess it was kind of like a Bible conference, teaching conference, and uh, the guy was up there teaching about there's nobody perfect, and the Bible says there's nobody perfect. And, and then he asked the question, uh, has anybody in here ever met a perfect man? 
And everybody looks around, and finally this man in the crowd raised his hand. Of course, there's always one, right? And so he calls out and says, sir, you've met a perfect man? He says, no, I've never met the perfect man, but I've, I've heard a lot about him. He said, well, who is this man? He says, um, well, according to my wife, it's her first husband. <laughs> but anyway, there's never been a perfect man or woman. None of us are above reproach. Paul said, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who seek after God. The believer has a different attitude towards sin. We know that when we do sin, not only uh, is our attitude towards sin and, and, the, and the nature is that we don't want to sin. If I didn't cover that, let me cover that. We don't want to sin. We shouldn't want to sin. We should desire not to sin. We should try hard, empowered by the Holy Spirit, not to sin. Not to, well, I know he said I'm going to sin, so I might as well. That is not the attitude of a believer, church. So what does that got to do with everything? This is how a true believer, an authentic Christian, thinks or doesn't think. I didn't say it. God said it. If you're walking around professing to be a Christian, but have the attitude that, well, I can sin and God will forgive me, that is not the attitude of a Christian. The attitude of a Christian should be, oh, I know that's a sin. I don't want to sin. I don't want to do that. Jesus taught his church. He taught the believers to pray, and he said, leave me not into temptation. We get called on, well, does God lead people? No, he's praying for God to allow him to avoid even the temptation to sin. And I think about this often, and then I'm convicted by it often, how much different would my day or my week be if I prayed to God, lead me not into temptation. Maybe he would help me. I think he would. We see the believer's attitude towards sin, but here quickly we see the believer's answer for sin is the advocate. He is the righteous one. He is the comforter. He is the propitiation, verse 2. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sin. There is no sin forgiven apart from Jesus' atoning, sacrificial death on the cross. So any person who trusts in Christ as their Savior, you also, you trust, not also, you trust in the fact that he died in your place, paying your price for your sin. And only through his atoning, the word there's mercy seat, the only forgiveness is in Christ and in Christ alone. Not of works, nothing you can do, no candles you can light, no prayers you can pray, no nothing you can do except trust in your advocate, Jesus, who is the price for your sin. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God was Jesus Christ paying your price, paying my price. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that you and I can stand in God's courtroom as the righteousness of Christ. We have a different attitude towards sin, but we know when we do sin, we have an advocate to call on. That's why in the first chapter, John says, hey, if we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Christians don't want to sin. Everybody say amen. 
But when Christians do, we have an answer for that sin. We have someone to call on. We have someone we want to call on. Let me cover this ground really, really good. A Christian doesn't just casually enter sin and say, oh, God, forgive me. That is not the attitude of a Christian. You ever been there? Yeah, wasn't a Christian. Or I was cold as cold could be. No, a Christian who sins against God is convicted by the Holy Spirit, knows the word of God, and at some point calls on the advocate, says, I gotta have you speak to God for me. And when we confess, that means we believe, we see the sin exactly how God sees the sin. When we confess it and say, God, that sin is just how you see it, ugly, and I shouldn't have done it, and we repent, he's faithful and just to forgive it and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. True believer has an advocate with the Father, but a true believer has, here's the good one, assurance of their faith. You can know. You don't have to leave wondering. You don't have to walk around in this dark world wondering, am I going to heaven one day? I hope I am. That is not God's plan and desire for your life. He wants you to know. A true believer is obedient to Jesus' word. I use that intentionally because he changes it up a little on us. In verse three, hereby do we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. The word keep there means you know it and you do it. This is a great one-liner. It's not original, but I didn't have a name behind it, so I'll take the credit. Obedience is the external, visible proof of salvation. James said, hey, show me your faith by your works. Show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. Obedience to the word of God, obedience to the command of God, is a sign, it's visible proof that you're born again. Jesus asked disciples who were all about following him. I, I mean, on one hand, I, I've got a pretty good mind so I can see it. Jesus walking around, everybody want to follow Jesus. I want to follow you, I want to follow you, what do I got to do, what do I got to do? And everybody, I, I, I know it, I think even the disciples sometimes, you know, there were 12, then there were others. I think they amen stuff, they didn't even know what they were amening. Everybody, every preacher needs a good amen or just amens for the sake of it. Because you see it in scripture, Jesus says something, he teaches this crazy truth, and everybody's like, hey, man. the disciples are like, hey, man, brother, that's right. And then he, he pulls them aside and says, now let me explain what I just meant. Because they say, I don't know what, I just say, man, I was just hoping you would tell us really what that meant. These disciples would come up to him, they would act like they're following him, and on more than one occasion, but Luke chapter six, Jesus says, um, why do you call me Lord and don't do the things that I tell you to do? Why do you say you love me and keep not my commandments? Can any Christian, can any professing believer in here, through maybe eyes, of faith, maybe eyes of imagination, picture you, me, 
sinning against God, not keeping his commandments, and see the face of Jesus saying, Dean, why do you say you love me but you don't do the things I ask? Why do you say you love me but you don't keep my commandments? See, it's not the, it's not the preacher or the Sunday school teacher or even the spiritual spouse saying, do you see what you're doing? It's Jesus saying to his disciple, why do you say you love me but you don't do what I ask? He that says I know him but doesn't keep his commandment is a liar. Verse 5, but whosoever keepeth his word. See, word is different than commandment earlier. They're similar, but they're different. But whoever keeps his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected or practiced. The love of God is practiced in the person who keeps his word, who does, knows, and does his word. This is a little extra credit here, but you can't. Do something you don't know. It's really important that believers know his word. When you know it, you do it. So many times people get into conversations, they're trying to figure out a way to sin. Now, you don't have to amen that. And here's the, here's the deal. Where does it say in the Bible that fill in the blank? Right? I'm glad you asked. There's a lot of things in the Bible that aren't said, but are still wrong. Now, you want, you want examples, and I don't have time. Just assume there are some. Jesus said, whoever keeps my commandments, and then two verses later, John says, keep my word. Word is different than commandment. When, when, when John says, whoever keeps his word, he's making a distinguishing delineation. Should we keep his commandments? Yep. Is he just talking about the 10? Nope. It's a lot more than 10 commandments. But then he expounds on commandments and says, keep his word. His word is basically anything Jesus has ever said, taught, or did. Ultimately, keeping his word is really about the person's will. You do what Jesus wills, what Jesus wants, what Jesus would be pleased with. It's not just keeping a commandment. It's doing everything. The word actually gets deeper and habitually that's pleasing to him. Everybody, I'm doing good on time, just so y'all know. Everybody wake up. I'm impressed, like with myself right now. It's much easier, be careful with this, to keep a commandment than to keep his word. It's easier to, to keep copious notes on keeping commandments than keeping his word. We can get very narrow-minded, church, on keeping commandments. 
But it's a whole different ball game to keep his word. Everything you do, everything I do, pleasing to him. Well, I went to Sunday school, big check. I gave 2% check. Uh, Y'all give offerings around here? Yeah, I'll take it. I dressed better than them, big check. See, what I'm doing right now is just trying to get people kind of fighting amongst their inner self. Do I like that or not? I'm not sure. How does he feel about that? I don't know. Okay. Well, I didn't do that sin. Check. I'm not like them. Y'all with me? Do I need to keep checking boxes? No. It's much easier to keep the checks than it is to keep his word. Farmer, old school farmer, had a son. The routine was this. Farmer gets up every morning and milks the cow. Tells the son when you get home from school, you chop and split wood. Chop and split wood so that the mom make a fire so that dinner's prepared. That's the routine. Dad gets up every morning, milks his cows. Son knows the commandment, throwing it in for any of you slow, um, is to come home, chop the wood, blah, blah, blah. That's what you're to do. And so that was the life. That's what they did. That's what the son did. That's what the father did. Son comes home from school one day. Dad's been sick all day. Dad's in the bed. Son chops the wood. Son notices, realizes, hears that the cows haven't been milked. Son goes and milks the cow. Son obeyed the command of the father in chopping wood. But he milked the cow because he loves his dad. There's a difference in doing something because you're told to do it doing something because you love the person you're doing it for. It's really this idea of spiritual maturity. It, it happens with parents and children, right? There's like three phases of this, right? Y'all know how this works? There's really three phases into obedience, three different reasons why someone obeys. Now, some of you grew up in my generation, some of you in an older generation, and we're, we're friends together because we all participated in parental beatings, right? <laughs> um, so, you, so on one level, you obey parents because you have to, right? Now, in a big picture, in a, in a, in a more uh, philosophical, it's this idea of obedience because of slavery. You're enslaved to something. Not just parents to children, but you're enslaved to something. Someone who has to do something. By the way, just for certain people in certain age brackets right now, there was a day when you had to do something. That's my biggest challenge in life right now. Dealing with people that are in a generation that don't know you have to do something. There are consequences if you don't do something. Oh my goodness, now, now's, now's where the time gets off, so just so everybody's... Uh, 
It's a different, it's a different world. And it's so bad, it's so hard to be Christian. No, and to, to be helpful. I can't tell that or it just go, it's just different. I can't imagine. Now my kids are perfect, so I'm just talking about other people's kids but, and how they do, but I can't imagine my dad saying, go do X, Y, Z, and I say, why? I didn't have to say why to get an I knew the answer before I would have even thought of asking that. And the next time I would have asked it, it would probably come out like, because my teeth and tongue would be swollen and I wouldn't have teeth. But it's like, why, why do I have to do that? What? Are you possessed? Why would you say such a thing? So we obey because we have to. That's, a, that's, a, that's rational. I say it again, for certain generations and people, that's rational. Mom and dad says, do it, do it. As long as it's not breaking God's law, do it. Why? Because they're parents and you're supposed to do what they say. Every parent should say something right now. Obey your parents, for it is right. Baptist Faith and Message, page 47. No, it's the word of God. People obey because they have to, and then people obey because they need to. Why do you do, I'm, I'm only talking to certain people in this room because the rest of them don't understand this. Why do you do what your boss says do? Not because you're enslaved to him, but because you need to. Not because you, you have to, but because you need to. If you're going to get a check, you need to do it. If you're going to pay the light bill, you need to do it. If you're going to buy groceries, $700 more a month, Bidenomics, then you have to work. You have to do it. Right? You need to. It's not because you have to necessarily. It's because you need to. Parents, we start to do that with our children. We try. I've heard of parents trying. I, mine are perfect again, just again, so we don't have to try. But we try. It's like, you do this because you have to. Obviously, when you go look at the result, they didn't feel the necessity to have to. Probably because we don't practice judo and karate like our parents did. Or <laughs> Anybody else sense the struggle? Like, like you, I've, to, I've told, this is life. Um, no. Back in the day when every now and then there was a slip and a kid would say something maybe disrespectful to his or her mom. Occasionally that has happened, but doesn't happen anymore because they've arrived. But one day I told my wife, um, I think I said something to this because she was a little frustrated with it and um, she should have been. And I said, you know, you know, the only thing I know that'll fix it is if you do what my mom would have done, which is just backslap them in the next month, right? I didn't say do that. I said, I think that's the only way to fix it. I'm not sure it's legal. I'm not sure it's ethical. I'm not sure it's Christian, but it worked. So there's a fine line between going to jail or making peace at the house. Like, how much is it worth? It only really took one time for most of us. It's like, you know, that wasn't pleasant, so I'll probably do it next time. 
You do it because you need to. We try that with our kids. Hey, if you do this, we'll give you $20 a week. Y'all think I'm making this stuff up. This happened in my house this month. If my dad or mom would have said, I'll give you $20 a week to do your basic chores, I would have done that. I would have washed, I would have cleaned the house. I mean, there's no telling what I would have done. Hoping for overtime, bonus pay, something. (laughs) But today, having to and needing to don't work. So I'm still going to get what I wanted anyway. And you're still not going to beat me. So what do you do? I don't know. Some of y'all just got to figure it out. But we work, we obey because we have to, we obey because we need to, and then we obey because we want to. Don't we all want to get to that level with our children? Like the boy who did his job, his dad's job, because he loved the dad. Now, I got faith and hope that we'll get to that place one day when I'm old and grayer and probably in a little rascal. But this is what God expects out of his believers. We don't, we don't please God and keep his word because, oh, if I don't, he's going to. By the way, that preaching doesn't work. I've, I heard it all my life. Boy, if you don't, God's going to blow your tire out. Now, it would work if God was up there plucking people off the planet. Would would it not? I have to do what God said because yesterday I was walking down the road and my friend got plucked off the planet. (laughs) Who wouldn't? Oh, I better get my act together. I'm the next plucker. (laughs) Right? I've got to serve God because I need to. Oh, if I don't, he's not going to take care of me. Nah, his grace is sufficient. He loves you. Every one of us can say God's been good even when I haven't. Now, God wants us to get to the place of serving him because we love him. And he says, keep my word. Keep my will. What does that look like? True believers obedient to his word and a true believer walks as Jesus walked. That's what it looks like. This is where it comes and really comes to a head. What does it look like being obedient to Jesus' word? What does it look like to be a true believer? How can we have assurance of our faith? It's when we walk like he walked. I got a whole lot of notes here. I got two more pages of notes on just walking like him. I think it can be simplified in, we've heard it before, doing what he would do. That sounds, that was really profound to go 40 minutes in to get that, right? Do what he would do. Walk like he would walk. Talk like he would talk. John says the light, the, the darkness is Past. King James says past. It's, he says the darkness is passing, but the true light 
is here. He said that nearly 2,000 years ago. Church, the darkness is still passing. It's not gone. It's here. I think many times we forget that when Jesus walked as the true light, the world was dark then too. Think of the darkness of the world that put him on the cross. That, that hasn't changed. Darkness is still here. It is passing, but it's not gone. And we're to be light. We're to walk in the light, as he said last week. We're to uh, abide in him. He that abides in him, verse 6, ought to walk even as he walked. John loved the phrase abide in him, by the way. That's his phrase for being a Christian, abide in him. It's this whole idea of uh, um, he's the vine and I'm the branches. We're in him, he's in us. Jesus walked, I think it's safe to say, Jesus walked was defined by his love. And John continues this message highlighting this timeless commandment. If you, if you read ahead, and I'm trying to finish, he says in verse seven, I'm not writing a new commandment. But then if you look in verse eight, he says, again, a new commandment. Anybody catch that? This is an old commandment, it's not new. Hey, here's a new commandment. Here's an easy way to put this together. Loving like Jesus loved is a timeless commandment. We are to love like he loved. Oh, that sounds so soft and Joel Osteen-like, doesn't it? By this shall all men know you're my disciples, Jesus said. Y'all know the rest? By your love for one another. From the very beginning, even in the law book of Leviticus, God had an expectation of his people to love and not hate. When Jesus is on the scene, he says, a new commandment I give to you, love one another. He told the rich young ruler, the greatest commandment, you love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. How did Jesus love people? What did it look like when Jesus loved people? It looked different than how other people treated people. Y'all hear that? That sounded a little silly and uneducated. How will people know you're one of his? How will you know you're one of his? This is important. Because we're not perfect. Y'all figured that out? How can I love like Jesus loved? Well, guess what? If you're not a believer, you can't. If you're not born again, you can't love like Jesus loved. It's difficult. 
Paul said in Romans 5, I, and hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Later he said, I'm crucified with Christ in Galatians, not I, but Christ that lives in me. You and I cannot love like Jesus if we don't know him. He said, I, I came all this way and all this sermon to get something that I already know. Maybe we've already heard it, but do we know it as reality? I don't need to tell grown adults that can read or watch TV that we live in maybe the most hate-filled, divided time in American history. All over the spectrum. It's not just one against the other, it's not just one race against the other race. We're all divided. Now, for what it's worth, I think it's a tool of the enemy. I think it's a strategy of the enemy. I think the enemy is Satan. Some of you had a, a party affiliation in your head. I think people are being led by Satan, and the strategy is to divide us. Most of us aren't as nearly divided as what we see portrayed on the media. All that said, how... I, I, the more I study scripture, the more I realize Jesus was a pretty smart guy. Never figured that out. Like he had it together. It's like he's God or something. And Jesus said in the first century, by this shall all men know you're my disciples if you love one another. And they probably thought that sounds like Sunday school, Jesus. We need something deeper, something more theological. And he's saying, 2,000 years later, knowing the mess this world would be in, he still says, by this will all men know you're my disciples by your love for one another. There's never been a time that you and I loving one another is not more visible, more obvious than in this dark, divided world. You want to prove that you're born again? You love people like Jesus loved it. It's not, a, it's not emotion, it's will. It's not fake, it's genuine. Church, this is, this is where it winds down. If you can't do that, it's a sign you're not born again. That is not like shouting ground. That's, I got to do a personal evaluation and assessment of my spiritual life and ask, can I love like Jesus loved? In spite of, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It is in our will to love as a believer. I read someone who said this, and I love it. Um, The ability to love like Jesus 
is not imitation, it's incarnation. Jesus was incarnate. He was God in the flesh. We're born again. The Holy Spirit comes and takes up an an abode in us. We are incarnated. We are God in the flesh. I didn't say we become Jesus. Everybody stop. I didn't say we become God's. But the Holy Spirit living in us is the only way we love like Jesus loved. I had, he's probably not watching because he doesn't like me anymore, so I don't care. I had a professing believer. This is honest truth. This is probably 25 years ago. He's a racist. He's as racist as the day is long. I hope he's gotten saved since then, but he said he was saved. And all of us, hey, everybody awake? I just said a word, got most of us woke up, right? Is there racism in this country? Absolutely. Can a Christian be a racist? Absolutely not. Woo, that's 12.03 and you just got that going. This guy, member of a church, born again. Taught this little Sunday school lesson. John, the same writer, says, how can you say you love God whom you've never seen and you can't love man? You see every day, basically. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Love one another as I have loved you. John says, a man who says he's born again but doesn't keep his commandments is a liar and the truth's not in him. This is not comfortable. It's getting hotter now that I'm talking about it. You cannot hate, that's the other word he uses, and be a believer. Can't. Not try hard. You can't. Can you still sin? Yep. And if we do, we have an advocate. See how this comes full circle? This whole idea in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, is about a habitual lifestyle of, is that my time? A habitual lifestyle of keeping his word. Everybody understand that? I didn't understand that, but I understand, yeah. But when you fail, you confess. You take advantage of your advocate, the Father, to the Father. You confess and you repent, but you cannot live a habitual lifestyle of hatred. As a believer, it's, it's a different nature. If you've got the Holy Spirit, God's nature dwelling inside of you, you cannot hate. We had this little lesson. One of my friends said, professed to be born again, still does. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't. We had a nice, I thought, growing conversation about what John says, this, this book. 
And this was the response. I never forget it. Kind of shocked me, kind of made me mad. He said, well, I know what it says, but I still hate, and he filled in the blank. Sitting on a church pew every Sunday. This is exactly what John says. How can you know what it says and not do it? And this professing believer says, oh, I know what it says, but I still hate. Fill in the blank. Now John says, if you're going to talk it, you've got to walk it. That's how we know. Would you pray with me? Thank you for listening today. If you'd like to know more about Central Baptist Church, events, and ministries, please visit our webpage at cbckannapolis.com.